This scene in, uh, in chapter one follows a, a, a scene with John the Baptist. And, and I just want to preface this a little bit as we, as we get into this text. John the Baptist is this kind of forerunner character. Um, he's kind of wild and, and outlandish in all these ways. And, and right before the text you just saw, some of the religious elite, some of the Pharisees come to John the Baptist and they ask him a really pointed question. They ask him, who are you? And John never really answers like he's supposed to answer. Um, how do I put this? At this point in time in the ancient Near East, all of Israel, all of the Hebrews lived under Roman occupation. So that, that means uh, it, it's like a, um, if another force came and policed our community that we weren't a part of, we, that's what it would feel like. The Jews lived under Roman occupation. They lived under Roman rule, and, and Romans really could do whatever they want. They had, they had the privilege and the military strength behind it. They could do whatever they wanted. And so for Israel, their constant prayer was for release. Release. And their hopes and dreams were put on the one who would one day release them. Israel would become its own nation, governed by no one except for God. And so their constant prayers were for this person, a king, a Messiah to come. And the religious elite, they see John the Baptist and they say, who are you? And, and they begin to ask, are, are you the one that we've been waiting for? You ever play that hot, cold game? You know what I'm talking about? Like you're getting warmer, you're getting, no, you're getting colder, you're getting colder. Like that's exactly what's happening in the text. Like, like the religious elite are like, are you the one? And John's like, well, you're getting warmer, but I'm not him. And they say, well, are you Elijah? Are you the one that's supposed to come before the one? And John's like, well, you may be getting a little bit warmer. Who are you? And while, uh, this is a really interesting part to me, while the religious elite are asking John if he's the one, John says, John's like talking to this crowd of people, John looks out in the crowd and says, you know, really, I'm not the one, but the one you were talking about is here in the crowd with you. You just don't recognize him. Pretty powerful idea that maybe Jesus is in the midst, but somehow we miss him. Somehow we don't see him. And John goes on to say, he said, you know, it's, I didn't recognize him either, honestly, until his baptism. And he talks about this scene where when he baptizes Jesus, the heavens part and a dove descends and the voice of God in Charlton's Heston voice says, this is my son in whom I'm well. You know, you guys know this, you've seen this movie. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes at Jesus' baptism and anoints Jesus. Now who gets anointed? In the Old Testament, kings get anointed. See how this fits together. Except kings usually only got anointed with the Holy Spirit for like a f this much time until their work was done. But Jesus receives an anointing that will last forever. 
Are you with me? Then we get to the text for today. Um, go ahead and put that, put that slide up there, Stephen. This is where I really got stuck this week. Like it, I got stuck on this text, and, I, and, I, and maybe it seems unassuming, but I got stuck, and I couldn't, I couldn't get away from it, so you're going to be stuck with me. Sorry, that's just the way it is. It, then it says, The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples, and as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Remember, he's in the, Jesus is there, the Messiah. He's there. He's in the crowd, but people don't see him. And Jesus just happens to walk by, and John says, there he is. He calls him the Lamb of God, which is this reference to sacrifice. Don't worry, we'll get to that later. And then verse 37, and this is, man, this is where I've been really stuck. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Um, my kids love the, the checkout aisle at grocery, at the grocery store at Walmart. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking Like the little cattle herd thing that they put you in and they put every kind of ridiculous thing on the planet. Like, and it's, you know, and the kids can't even see over it, you know, like it's this high and it's every bright colored doodad and gadget and horrible piece of gossip or whatever on the planet. And we, we herd our kids into this thing while we're waiting. And, and our kids are like, I don't know if, you're, if your kids are like this. My kids are like, I must have this. They get money, they, they, they kind of, they're at that age, like they kind of have some of their own money right now. You know what I'm saying? Like they get their, it's their own money. And we keep an account on our phone of how much it's their money to do with whatever they want. You know, and they've got savings and giving. And, but there is, for the first time ever, they have their own money. And I'm thinking, can I go back to that place? I don't feel like, I, I want my own money. <laughs> When did, that, when did that stop? Um, but they have their own money, and they get to choose how they want to spend it. And man, like, the checkout aisle is a horrible place for this, right? Because they're in all of the new of, I have my own money, and then here they are, like, temptation central, right? It's everything they could not possibly need and everything they cannot live without at the same time. Right? And it, it just, that makes me think about this text in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. Um, because, like, there's all of this stuff that they could get, and a lot of times they do, and Amy and I, we just kind of like, well, it is your money, right? And, and that's fine until something big that they really want comes along. And then what happens? Then none of that other stuff looks that great anymore. You know what I'm saying? And, and we're, I'm, I'm the mean one. I'm like, sorry. You spent your money. Um, Jim Collins wrote this great book for, for like business and some of the, uh, I guess it's for everybody, but it's, it's called Good to Great. You ever read this book? Ever heard of the book Good to Great? And 
in his book, really like for businesses, what he would say, and this is the quote from the, the quote from the book that has gone around ever, everywhere. He said, good is the enemy of the great. You agree with that? So I see a lot of this coming to life in this text. So you have two disciples standing beside John, and, and the whole disciple-rabbi-teacher relationship is, is really important and really intricate. I, I mean, to be a disciple means that you left everything else to go and follow this one guy, right? He would be your rabbi, your teacher, and the best place for a disciple to be is, they call it, in the dust of the rabbi. Like, you're following so closely with so much intention, with so much focus that wherever the rabbi walks, literally the dust from his footsteps gets all over you. Right? So John, the Baptist, has disciples, And these disciples have left family and friends and career to follow John. They've committed their whole life to him. They've committed their whole life to his teachings. And let's be honest, like like John is really the hot teacher on the scene right now. I mean, all of the religious elite know who John the Baptist is. He's a wild guy, and yet people are flocking from the cities to the wilderness to be with him. He is incredibly popular. And at this point in time, at least in John's gospel, John is incredibly well-known. And at this point in time, in the story, Jesus is unrecognizable. You see it? John is familiar. Sure, he's a wild man. But with John, his disciples knew exactly what to expect. Jesus was completely unfamiliar. And following John would have been, not the easy necessarily, but the safe way to go. You, don't you see, like, like staying with John the Baptist would have been the good choice. We're following Jesus. That was a real risk. You see that? I I know the text doesn't, doesn't draw that out, but it's there. It's a risk to leave the good thing that you're, you're a part of and follow Jesus. And what I would tell you is not much has changed. I asked this question and, and, and I already know the answer, but did John have other disciples? Well, yeah, right? There are other disciples. John the Baptist had other disciples even later in the text. You'll see some of John's disciples are sent to Jesus. And did those other disciples hear John say the same thing. Like, did, were there other disciples there? I mean, it talks about two, but were there other disciples there when John says, hey, he's the one you've been looking for. It's him. He's the guy. Did, other, did some of John's other disciples hear that and just choose to stay with John the Baptist? Like, I don't know. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But I gotta wonder, like, like, 
for those other disciples, did their, or, or somehow would their love for John cost them a chance to walk with Jesus? Like, like right there, like there's this incredible moment to turn, to enter the plan and purpose of Jesus. And all I know from the text is that two disciples that day made that choice. But how many have missed the chance to walk in the mission and purpose of Jesus himself? How many of, of, in our world, in our context, how many have missed the chance to walk with Jesus for love of a personality? Like we've got some hot teachers out there right now. We've got some hot preachers, some hot pastors, myself excluded, right? They're compelling and enthralling and animated and can draw you in in just the right way and speak just to your right heart. We've got some amazing hot preachers out there, exciting and energetic and dynamic just like John the Baptist. And I hope like John the Baptist, John will say later in, in chapter three, he, he gets to this point. John the Baptist will say, I must become less so Jesus can become more. I must become less so he can become greater. And you see that even in his teaching. You don't see these two disciples of John the Baptist turn from him and now start following Jesus. And John goes, no, 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 come back. I need you to be my disciples. No, it's, it's like John blesses them and sends them out, right? Think that was easy? You know, John is building this good thing. Like, like he, he's got this good ministry happening. He never wants to send his people away to something else. Like, he's got a good thing going on. And yet later, John the Baptist himself exalts Jesus. Says, Look, he needs to be the one. He needs to be the one that gets the attention. He needs the one. All of this points to him. And, and none of it should point to me. And frankly, our world, like, we need more preachers and teachers like John the Baptist. Who hasten their followers into a kingdom purpose instead of just serving their own ego. You guys can help protect me from this. Can you do it? Like I just see in this moment, I see in that, that verse 37, two disciples heard this and they followed Jesus. Like I, I, just, I just hear such an incredible and important chance. And I wonder how often we, we miss that chance. How many have missed our chance to, to really enter into Jesus' ministry, to walk right in his footsteps for love of, well, I really like this pastor, man. He really just speaks right to me. How many of, our, how many of us have missed our chance to, to move into the, the powerful ministry of Jesus for love of a worship style? Like this is big in our world right now today, right? Well, this worship style really speaks to me. 
like him. Remember what John the Baptist said, I got, we have to become less so he can become more. I, I think there's a message for us that like, maybe a warning like, sometimes I think we can become so enamored with a, with a faith that is safe and familiar that even within the context of the church, we can miss the chance to walk with Jesus. I think sometimes we can become so focused on doing our own thing that we can miss the thing that God is trying and inviting us into. Are you with me? You want to try something? You should already see where this is going, right? Here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to stand up. You did it. Awesome. I'm trying to encourage you. All right, here's your challenge. I want you in the next 30 seconds to find a different seat. One, two, three, go. <laughs> Clock is ticking. Some of you didn't move. I think you're going to get reported. <laughs> All right, how did, how did this make you feel? <laughs> um, I know that was, that was a dumb, silly thing. Maybe, maybe, it'll, it, maybe it has some potential to resonate in you a little bit of... Is switching seats, uh, if, if switching seats meant making room for a guest to have a seat, how would that make you feel? What happens when a guest unknowingly sits in your seat or parks in your parking space? You see how this can happen? Like, thank God this is not us. And if it is, we'll root it out. But I hope, I hope you would be excited by the fact that a guest is in your seat and not begrudge it. I think it's something for us to pay attention to as a church. I think all churches, I think we kind of naturally, like, like there's this force in every church and that kind of pulls us towards our center, right? Pulls us to what we know and feels comfortable and feels familiar. Sometimes people say, you know, Adam, man, I, I just, I love your small church. It just, they do that. Um, and in, in the kindest words I can, I say, well, we aren't small on purpose. If in a year from now, 
Aspen Grove is different, even, even vastly different. How would you feel? If in a year from now, uh, Aspen Grove experiences, just, just ponder with me. If in a year from now, Aspen Grove experiences exponential growth, say we add 100 or 200 or 300, how do you feel now? It would be crowded. (laughs) If you can't find a parking spot, much less a seat. If you have to wait in line for the bathroom, which is, that's going to be the first issue for us, frankly. (laughs) If we have to go to two services... If it meant you don't as readily have the opportunity to see all your besties, would you still love it? Would you celebrate it or begrudge it? Every church faces the challenge of gravitating to the center. And left to our own devices, we we would do the exact same thing. I think that's part of why what John the Baptist does is so phenomenal. Every church there is a pool to the center, to the comfortable, to the familiar. And Aspen Grove can be a good church forever. Right? I love Aspen Grove. I'm proud of it. I love serving it. But if we are not careful, our love of the good can rob us of the chance to be great. Our love of the good can rob us of the chance to serve God's purpose here and now in our community. And what it takes from us is... um, if we are to prevent this, to steer away from it, frankly, it, it takes really good leadership in the form of your, your staff, of myself, of, of your elders. Of, uh, it's, it's a willingness to do exactly what John did, which is to say it's not about us, it's not about me, it's not about our ego, but it is about keeping the mission and purpose of God, the invitation of Jesus, out in front and, and we're praying for new leaders and godly leaders who can come and walk alongside us in this vision. And that vision is always going to challenge our comfort zones. If we sang only hymns, if we sang only contemporary, would you still love it? We say all the time at Aspen Grove, like, Like, how can we lower our Aspen Grove flag to raise a kingdom flag? And and I mean that even in the sense of within us and what happens within us in a church. And I love that you guys love each other. And I love that we're a community. And I love that we're a hug and howdy church. I mean, that's like who we are. Like, you you just get it, right? And I, I love that you love this community. I just want to make sure that we're loving the kingdom more. And as your, your servant, which is what I think that I am, I want to remind you that kingdom trumps community every time. It has to. And so finally, like, we need leadership. We need to challenge our comfort zones. 
but we just need, also need courage. Do you see the courage these two disciples had? To leave everything that they knew and understood for something completely unknown. So I invite you as, as a part of this church to be on the edge of your seats because that's really where I need you. If you see a guest looking for a seat, I need you to be the first one to stand up and say, here, take mine. I want you to have a kingdom mind to always be looking for the invitation of Jesus. What happens next in scripture is these two disciples, they leave John the Baptist, they leave the familiar, they leave the good, they leave the known, and they follow Jesus. They show up just in Jesus' footsteps, just like good disciples should. They show up behind Jesus, the very first ones, and Jesus turns to them and says, what do you want? And they call him rabbi. They say, teacher, where do you live? What's happening here? What are you all about? And Jesus tells them, come and see. Come and see. I think in this first, like, little microcosm of John, you see the whole of what John wants to accomplish in his gospel. I, I, I see it. You see the turn, the move, the choice. Two disciples, without knowing fully everything, recognize that the Messiah has come, and they turn and leave everything else and follow him. Jesus invites them in. He says, come and see. He says, come and follow me. And, and so it is the turn to Jesus. And then it is following Jesus, walking in his footsteps. That's what we say at Aspen Grove. We want to grow followers of Jesus Christ. That means every day there is something that I can learn from Jesus. There is something in his behavior, in his teaching, in his attitude, in his values that I can take on myself. And it's the assumption that there's room to grow, that somehow you aren't finished. So turn to Jesus, grow as a follower of Jesus. And then the third step, if you look carefully in the text, what they do next is, is my favorite step. And we get hung up on this one a bunch. Once they go and they discover, they come and see for themselves who Jesus is, then they go and invite others. You see them, they immediately go to this guy named Simon and say, they tap him on the shoulder. They say, we have found him. Simon shows up. Jesus looks intently at him. I love that scene. Looks in, right in his face. Calls him a new name and invites him to come. To Philip, Jesus says, come and follow me. And then where does Philip go? Philip goes immediately to this other guy named Nathaniel, which is this guy of integrity. That's a, that's a good name. And Nathaniel, like, there's, there's comedy in this whole thing, too. They, they go to Nathaniel, and they, Philip taps Nathaniel on the shoulder and said, we found him, the one we've been waiting on, the one that we put all our hopes and dreams in. We have found him. He's from Nazareth. And uh, uh, Nathaniel, this is a great scene. Nathaniel says, nothing good ever come out of Nazareth. It's like saying, like, nothing good ever came out of Murfreesboro. You know, it's like, I don't know, some of you like, <laughs> anyway, I, think, I just think it's funny. 
Like they didn't recognize him. But then Nathaniel gets close. Nathaniel for himself, like they didn't force him to bleed. And Nathaniel himself comes and sees for himself. And he discovers the truth of who Jesus is. He says, hey, you're the, you actually are the king. You're the one. You're the one. And don't you see the whole kingdom potential in that, right? Like there was no chance for them to stay and get set and get situated and feel really comfortable. Like it was this movement. They, 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 they recognize Jesus and they follow him and then they invite others and bring them in, invite them to do the same. Like that's our mission. That's our purpose to invite others and say, hey, we found him. We found him. Come, come and see for yourself. And, and the thing that I, I just, I want to encourage you is like, I, I want to stir up in this church a love for people who are far from God. And I want us to love people who are far from God more than we love our church. Fair? I, I want us to love those who don't know him. I, I, like in, in, for God's perspective, every person in our city who doesn't know him is, is like a missing person, is like a lost child or son. And if you lost your child, if you lost your kid, if you lost a friend, what would you do? Well, you go to church every Sunday, and right? Like pray for him. Or would you go after him? Like, I think Jesus, like, this whole mission is wake up the search and rescue team, right? Like, that's who you are. That's who we are. That's what this kingdom thing is about, to go out. Let's find them. I told you uh, in February, uh, I'm going to put a prayer challenge out in front of you. I'm going to give you a taste of it, and you're going to get some more of this in the next couple of weeks. So I have a friend of mine at, a, at Ethos Church downtown, and he, uh, he said, man, I had this real passion to pray for our city. I was like, awesome, let's pray for Nashville right now. We'll pray for Franklin, we'll get it done. Check it off our list, make it happen. He said, well, that, that's right, but I, I want to pray for our city in, in a little bit deeper way, and, and I'm not sure how to do that. And he, and he had a friend, he said, my friend came to me, my friend works for the city, my friend said that, did you know that you can get a list of every single name of every single person who lives in this city? I said, no, I didn't know you could do that. So he got the list. You're going to see where this is coming. So he got the list of every, no minors, no unlisted numbers, so you're still safe out there, those of you that are unlisted. He got the list of every single person in uh, uh, Davidson, Williamson, Sumner, Rutherford, I don't know how many counties. Um, almost 250,000 households of names, right? And they're, they're a big church, but he immediately thought, okay, how am I going to pray for all of these names individually? How am I going to pray for all these names? Like that's even if I do one a second, that's going to take a while, right? And so word got out and he invited other churches to come. And so right now I will tell you Aspen Grove is one of over 300 churches that have signed up to pray for every single person in this area. And coming in February, I'm gonna give you your 
own unique list of names. No duplicates, right? Uh, the way this works is you're going to get first names only. Uh, you actually do get an address because there's like, the, all right, the shallow end of the pool is I want you to pray and fast for every single name that you get on your list. The deep end of the pool is I'm actually going to give you postcards because that name comes with an address and I want you to write a handwritten note to that person. So by the end of February, 200 and almost 250,000 households in our area will get something in the mail that says, hey, I've been praying for you. So do you, do you taste the kingdom on that? Like what would happen? What would happen if we just didn't just pray for our city, but we prayed for our city? What would happen if over 300 churches from every tribe and stream came together to pray for our city? Like that's, that's the invitation of this whole thing. And I invite you this morning just to, as, as we enter into a communion time, which is, which is about to happen for us, there's tables set up around the room. Like these are, this is a sacred space to remember Jesus' death and burial and sacrifice. It is, it's sacred. There's so much good and healing and, and confession and repentance and forgiveness that can happen in this space. But as you take these elements today, I, I, I hope you remember that taking, communing with Jesus means all of those things, but it also means embracing the mission of Jesus which is every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Aspen Grove exists to grow followers of Jesus Christ, to help people make the turn. And my invitation to you this morning is the exact same that, that Jesus made to his disciples. The invitation is come and see for yourself. This morning, maybe you have questions, maybe you're searching, maybe you have questions about baptism or, or even just the church. If there's ways that uh, we can pray for you or serve you, if you're curious about this person of Jesus, man, we, we want to be there and be available to you. And so as, as I dismiss everyone to a time of communion, I'm just going to move to the back. And if there's ways we can pray for you or serve you there, that's, that's what we want to do. Let me pray. Father God, I love you so much. I thank you for the word and, and for the challenge that's in this. God, I'm challenged. I'm challenged. God, don't, don't let, us, let us get too comfortable. God, we, we celebrate the work that you're doing in this church and the work that you've done, but God, we know that, that there is a greater calling and purpose for us. And so, so, Father, God, keep us moving and keep us uncomfortable, but God, keep us in love with your mission and purpose for this community, for this world, for our, for our friends and neighbors and coworkers, for our own family members. Father God, our, our job is to invite, invite others to come and see for themselves, to come and see the truth of who you are, to call you out of the crowd. So Father God, maybe this morning there are things that we, we have been clinging on to that have been a little bit too comfortable, that it's, it's, maybe it's not a bad thing, maybe it's a good thing, but God, maybe it's been, still been distracting us from the great thing of walking with you. And so God, how we can, where we can, help us to release those things. Help us to make the turn. Help us to come and to follow you. We love you, Father, and in your son Jesus' name, everybody together says,